It's a rock and roll bedtime story spin off series. It's called BS Conversations, where we get to talk to the folks making the magic happen. And a special fun time today where I got to have a long form conversation with John Ferguson from the Apples in Stereo. He'll tell the story about how he got in that band. If you are not familiar, you're going to hear a lot of their tunes in the next few minutes. Uh, but just know this is a band who had a tremendous impact. Uh, in indie rock and underground music over the last, oh, 20, 25 years, uh, centered around a guy named Robert Schneider, uh, who will come into the conversation with uh, John Ferguson here in just a few minutes. But John Ferguson has a lot of rock and roll pedigree of his own that we will talk about, and it is a really interesting conversation. He was a pleasure to chat with, and he's got a lot of good music recs for you from his giant record collection as well. So here's another BS conversation. My name is Brian. This is Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Keep listening to stories and keep telling stories. You're an interesting get because I know you've got a really interesting rock and roll origin story. Tell me about how you found and fell in love with music. How long have we got? <laughs> as long as you got, buddy. As long as you got. My father's a musician. I'm sure that's kind of a, a story that you hear a lot from other musicians. It's like, well, it, it, my it's, parents did it. It's crazy how common that is. We, t- we had Casey Cavalier from The Wonder Years a, a few weeks mm-hmm. back, and he very quickly was like, oh, yeah, my I found out at a certain age, like it became clear to me i've discovered a bunch of stuff in the attic and i was like dad what did you do he was like oh i was in this band that we almost made it in the 70s right well my story is very similar my dad was a musician music was on in my house constantly so from my earliest memories and like cloudy memories from age three on probably but music was always a big part of those memories my dad was a boomer so he was a big rock and roll guy and loved the beatles and loved the 60s and then he became a musician himself and in the 70s. My dad's best friend and bandmate was R. Stevie Moore. Oh, my God. Is his name? Yeah. And he's considered like the godfather of home recording. Yeah. Let's talk about our Stevie Moore. So you grew up around this guy. Yeah, he was kind of like my weird uncle. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in the in the days before the internet, he was my internet. 
in a lot of ways. Wow. Um, wow. What an interesting way to put it. So did you realize, yeah. at what point did you realize that not everybody had R. Stevie Moore in their life? Not until high school. I thought everybody was weird <laughs> like my family until <laughs> high school. And then I look around and I'm like, oh, everybody's listening to Garth Brooks except yeah. for me. <laughs> Yeah, for so. sure, dude. I had that experience as well, man. I remember like people bringing in no fences, being like, listen to this. I'm like, nah, no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> R. Stevie Moore moved up to New York, uh, New Jersey in like 1978, the year I was born. But he and my dad stayed really tight through phone calls and through mailing tapes back and forth. And so my dad was constantly playing music. He had a massive record collection. And he was uh, cool enough to be open to newer music, especially in the like late 70s when kind of new wave came along. Yeah, He really took to like the Buzzcocks and Talking Heads and uh, bands like that, kind of the, the new wave of British artists. Right, 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 right. XTC was a huge band in my household, like constantly being played. <laughs> right on. Uh, so some of my earliest memories are like those first few 80s records of XTC. Stevie Moore because I'd visited with him seldomly, but uh, he was constantly writing to my dad, constantly writing on the phone. Steve would like overdub weird music on top of me speaking as a child. So, <laughs> so you're on our Stevie Moore recordings? I am. That's amazing, man. That's not everybody can claim that in their bio or Wikipedia page, right? That's a that's a real claim yeah. of fame. Uh, at the same time, our Stevie was a DJ at WFMU up in New Jersey. Yeah. Which is still a very, it's like a benchmark for still a big radio. deal. Right. Yeah. And so I was on WFMU as a kid as a, at a very young age as well. Amazing. Just strange little recordings. My dad would record of me singing songs around the house or having little <laughs> skits or whatever. Uh, and all of this just felt really normal in my house. We like, we had record players, tape players, reel to reels. All of that ephemera related to music just felt like, oh, I assumed everyone had all this stuff in their households, too. Right, right. So. It, isn't it weird how you grow up with something? I mean, regardless of what it is, whether it's music or religion or, you know, learning how to work on cars or whatever it might be that you're sort of handed yeah. down generationally and you have no idea. Absolutely. So uh, fast forward to like when I'm 13, I think my dad bought me my first four track. Oh. And it was the Tascam 424. We bought it used. Here, here, son, go into the go into the world and create your own path. <laughs> Absolutely, and really, I've never looked back. It was uh, on top of my musical adventures that I've had. I was also a professional uh, theater technician, and I worked in entertainment production. Okay, 
but I tell people if they ask, I tell people I owe everything to the four track. Like the four track was what really got me into like turning knobs and figuring out how to shape sounds and how to just be a creative, you know, it's like my little creative diary. You mentioned that your dad had a decent record collection. Uh, Tell me about yours. I mean, it's big. It's probably too big. <laughs> you know, anytime you move it, you're like, why do I have this record? Uh, but it's not just yeah. the staples of rock and roll, right? Like it's oddities and weird stuff. And I mean, for sure. Okay. And now I'm trying to pare it down to just like sentimental pieces or things my friends have made or things I know have not been repressed in any other format. You know, what, what's the, what's the weirdest thing you've got in there? I think I've got a, a couple of original Jandek records. Uh, Jandek was a strange fellow. I think he was out of Texas and he, these records came through our Stevie when he was up at WFMU. Oh, wow. Jandek would just mail out these private press records to various record stations around the country. They're pretty unlistenable. <laughs> I mean, it's like just the mumblings of a madman over an out of tune guitar. And it sounds really like personal and just kind of like, you're not supposed to be, you're not supposed to like be you're there. overhearing like a schizophrenic yeah. man. Yeah. He said, show up Wearing either black or white I looked at my clothes and it seemed Oh, it was all black collectors out there who would like those pieces i should probably get rid of them (laughs) that's funny uh what's the what's the in your record collection what's your go-to like the not the the most listenable if that's the most unlistenable thing what's your favorite thing to pull out and uh and turn up i'm a huge free design fan i don't know if you know the free design kind of a vocal group from the late 60s who they were brothers and sisters and the main songwriter was also this brilliant composer, arranger, had a background, a strong background in classical music. And uh, I mean, they're in that tradition of like the Mamas and the Papas or okay. Spanky and Our Gang. Yeah. Uh, just a lot of vocal arrangements and really heavy handed, like three and four part harmonies at all times. But there's something kind of dark in their music, too. And they sing about really deep issues and uh, like the sadness of the late 60s era. They're always a fun go to for vinyl. So when I hear you talk about all this stuff and this obvious depth of music knowledge and this real, you know, this pedigree that you come from, like you seem like the perfect fit for the Elephant Six Collective. But how did that happen? Did you like apply and say, hey, I want to be in one of these bands? Like, it's crazy to me that a guy who like clearly was born for this gets to the right place because that doesn't happen for everybody. It was pure coincidence or kismet or whatever you want to call it. Um, I had read on the Internet and this is like Internet 1.0. 
I was in a like a chat room about XTC, the band. I found out that uh, Andy Partridge from XTC was working with Robert Schneider of the Apples in Stereo on some collaborative. They were probably making an album together. Sure. And Robert Schneider had also just moved to Lexington, Kentucky, completely unrelated to me. He just, uh, I think his wife's family, his wife at the time, her family lived here and they just had a child. And I think it was like trying to get closer to grandparents. Yeah. I joke all the time that that's how everyone ends up in Kentucky. Quite a few famous folk live somewhere in Kentucky and it's like, great, right? Because you can keep a pretty low profile when you're in the middle of Kentucky somewhere. Yeah. I really like this area because there's a lot happening, but there's not a lot of like kind of industry here as far as the music industry or the entertainment industry. So people are a little more free to be their weirdo self <laughs> and not be pressured by you know commercial constraints. And I had already had a band at this time called Big Fresh. Right. And, uh, shout out to them. Uh, they're all still my best friends in the world. And uh, was kind of a loose collective of friends who were also like home taping enthusiasts. They also also all had four tracks. I used to have it all. I chased the mountains into skies. got to Lexington and Big Fresh was playing up here. Uh, we were doing an event for the local radio station and Robert Schneider shows up at that event. Oh and my I recognize Lord. him. And oh my Lord. What a, what a great moment, right? Yeah. So I walk up to him and I'm like, Hey, I'm John. And uh, you know, I'm a big fan and uh, <clears throat> I'm a big fan of XTC and the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson's music kind of always have informed anything I do musically, like there's always a little Beach Boys flavor to it. Uh, and the same for Robert with the Apples and Stereo. It's right. like, so almost immediately, Robert and I started a new band called Ulysses, where I was the drummer and Robert played guitar and wrote the songs. together and had a blast and made an album and put it out it was kind of the next step for me going from a band just playing local bars to actually like getting out of town and playing like cmj in new york city and bigger profile shows so i was enamored with that right robert's whole world he'd already built up a pretty successful career by this point He'd already recorded uh, in the aeroplane over the sea with Neutral Milk Hotel. Yeah. what One of the, like, depending on the age that you are, like, just considered one of the greatest albums of all time. Yeah. But by this time that I met Robert, I'd also kind of started my professional career where I was a technical director here in Lexington doing backstage productions and theater. And... <clears throat> And I would love to have joined the Apples right away, 
I don't know there was an opportunity at that point, but uh, I just kind of plugged along with my professional career and he would go out on the road and then come back and we would collaborate and make music and hang out. And around 2006, uh, I lost my mother to cancer and I was her caretaker for a a good chunk of that year. And it was pretty stressful and kind of heavy. And I was a young man at the time. So all of that led to this moment of just like, wow, life is really short and you really never know like what's going to happen. Like maybe I'm only going to be here 50 years. Maybe I'm only going to be here 40 years. Right. So I kind of made a decision to just like quit my job and go on the road with the apples. Holy cow. How'd that go down with everybody (laughs) around you? Well, I just had a daughter. I was going to say, I, I did the math. I'm pretty sure that your daughter was probably uh, was pretty new to the yeah. world at that point. Thankfully, my wife was uh, at the time. She was uh, very patient with me and very supportive and allowed for me to, you know, we would hit the road for a month or five weeks or at the most. And then come home for a stretch and then go back out for another month. And then so there was enough balance of being home throughout the year that it it worked right on. Yeah, the first week that we went out, we made a video uh, for the song Energy. Yep. And it was directed by Elijah Wood, uh, yep. the actor. Yep. That's and, a, that's, that's yeah. a big song. That's still a big song. I mean, that's a song that's got... Who is it? I, is that the song that Fish has in their sets now? Like, I mean... Yeah. 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 Fish now covers it. They've covered it like 15 times in their sets. Yeah. That's Which what, is an odd pairing to me. Like, listen, uh, man, every, anyway. good music is good music. I always say the mark of a good of a good song is a song that translates across all sorts of genres and bands that you wouldn't you wouldn't that's think it would. And though the world is made of energy and the a lot about your how you got into music and yeah. you know it's interesting because some people stumble into it and there's a lot of mystique around it you were just sort of born into it in a lot of ways right um totally. and so you grew up with this totally mystique privileged. but i do wonder you know was there a rock rumor a rumor from rock history that you heard at a young age that got stuck in your brain i was really uh, formed by my father's perspectives on so many things uh, musically uh, it wasn't until high school that I kind of branched out. He was a very much like a power pop kind of Anglophile, like very British centric for him. The best music was made out of England and sure. it either sounded like the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or the Beach Boys or yeah. those kinds of things. Around high school, I started to veer off and be like, well, now I like hip hop or now I like jazz. Sure. Now, you know, and he didn't have as much uh, formation for that for me. But in terms of rumors, he was constantly telling me war stories of like times he'd hung out with famous people. Oh, wow. Uh, prior to my birth, like, <laughs> I don't know, like, for 
whatever reason, one one night sticks out that uh, he and my mom got to hang out with the whole band. Yes, really. They, what era they of Yes? In this would have been like seventy seven. Oh, the good era of Yes. Yeah. Okay. We recently we recently talked on the show about Yes and had to make that distinction about like when Yes became a totally different thing in the eighties, right? Like, but the core totally. core Yes. Uh, it sounds like that's what he got to experience. That's like pretty much the best time of yes was like 76 to 79 or whatever. Yeah. So they, uh, I think they hung out in some hotel room and I think dad mentioned that the guys in the band were trying to hit on my mom. And so you go. You know, ru- that's kind of a rumor, but it's kind of also <laughs> personal about, you know, your parents. So that's uh, I got to say, I know a lot of weird things about my parents, but I, my dad's never told me that the members of yes were hitting on mom. So I'm like, I don't know what that does to your brain. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's whoo. He told me one time that they were hanging out after a show with the B-52s and I think it's Kate Pearson uh-huh. was like being extra flirty with my dad and kind of hitting on him. So, so one for mom, one for true? dad, mom, mom could have ended up with yes. He could have ended up with the B-52s, you know, it's, it's exactly. the paths we don't take. Right. And whether these stories are true or not, I, he could have easily elaborated or he could have gotten like a smile and a nod from her. And then for him, that meant yeah. like, oh, she's on to me. Sure. Well, yeah. and that's the thing about the rock and roll lore and stories. Right. And that's why they're so fascinating is even when they're coming from the person who says they happened or was a part of them you're still talking about an unreliable narrator to some degree, right? And so that's, we spent a lot of time on the show sort of parsing that out of like, okay, even though, you know, uh, uh, David Crosby says all this crap happened, he had that book in which he says that written by the screenwriter from Jaws. So like, we we know (laughs) that it was probably elaborated on and, you know, blown up a little bit out of proportion. Uh, another one he took, so my dad and our Stevie had a band in the seventies. They made a little uh, single 45 single of their song and they had, you know, lots of copies left over cause it didn't really hit. Wasn't a big hit. Yeah. So he had extras and he would take those to shows <laughs> and kind of give them to his heroes. And I think he put one in the hands of David Byrne at a talking heads show wow. one night. So he bragged to me about that constantly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, part of me was like, I bet like five seconds later, that thing was in the trash can, you know? <laughs> well, it all depends on what age you hear the story, right? Uh, that's the interesting right. thing about the relationship between a, pa- a father and a son or a parent and a child is you go through different phases of, of appreciation and understanding of your parents. And, you know, hopefully yeah. you love them your whole life and you guys have a great relationship. But even when that's the case, there's a certain point where you're like, Oh, so dad's not God, and he could be totally full of shit. <laughs> like, totally. Yeah, yes. All these stories could be hogwash. Um, yeah. So you, you talked about, I love this, you know, hey, I had this thing happen with my mom, and I really reevaluated life, and for that, for me, it was yeah. like, now I'm going to go on the road. So you've, you've done the touring thing, and I think a lot of times when you talk about rock and roll rumors and rock and roll excess and rock, all that sort of stuff, right, it gets wrapped up in the touring. So I, you've done some international touring, right? Like, Yep. Tour, touring in Japan. Tell me about what it's like to tour in Japan. Uh, we just went for a week and just played a few shows. Uh, the Apples had played Japan, I think, twice before I joined them. Um, but Japan's an amazing country. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. I would love to go back. Uh, when we Robert and I went as kind of members of the Apples, but without the full band. Okay. And we had a, some friends of ours have a band called Eleki Bass in, out of Tokyo. And they're big fans of Roberts and uh, big fans of the Apples. 
So they basically organized these shows and said, we'll be your backing band. Well, fun. How'd that work out? That always seems like it would work out in theory, but not so much in execution. Dude, they knew our songs better than we knew them. Like they played with such technical precision. They were showing us like our own riffs and stuff. Actually, you need to do that up, up, a, up a fret there, buddy. Yeah, right. That's uh, that's really cool. Where is what other cool places? Like if you if you had to pick the coolest or favorite place that you got to tour over the years, where is it? Uh, we got to go to Brazil for whatever reason. The song "Energy" kind of made a little splash on Brazilian radio. And so we were brought down for a big festival in Sao Paulo. That was a blast. This is a common story. I've had this conversation with musicians a lot over the years, which is like, we went to Brazil and didn't know we had a hit. Like that seems to happen a lot. Like I've heard that from other folks who are like, you wouldn't believe the crowds we play to in South America. (laughs) You know? Right. It's shocking too. Like we've toured Europe and before me, the apples have toured Europe a couple times as well. Um, just the way you get treated in different countries is kind of stands out. If you're a touring artist, you kind of remember like, oh, it sucks to play Idaho, but it's great to play Georgia. Or, you know, yeah, yeah, it just yeah, yeah. stands out your your experiences at different venues or different crowds or different. Sure. You never know how you're going to be received, really, anytime you go anywhere. Right. But Europe stands out as just a place where they really know how to, like, treat and spoil artists. Really? You know, you feel like yeah. you feel very special. Yeah. You know, that's a great point, because I wonder if there's a little bit of this American cynicism built into in America. It's like you as a, you choosing to be a musician is like cheating the uh, on the American dream. Right. Like, oh, you didn't work yep. hard enough. Right. Whereas like in right. Europe, that's not really baked into society. It's more about, you know, what you're able to leverage. And but, the, the fact that you're there in their country where they want to be like hosts and like yeah. show off their country. And they assume that the fact that you're there from another country is special. It's like, well, it must be a big deal. So what's going on with the band now? Are you guys, I know you've taken a hiatus for a bit. We're, we've kind of really been on hiatus since 2012. We lost one of our bandmates, Bill Doss, right. uh, that year. And that, that kind of, you know, it's tough to lose a friend and a bandmate. We played a reunion show in 2017 down at Athens Pop Fest in yeah. Athens, Georgia. A big part of our kind of fan base and core, like the Elephant Six Collective is really more out of Athens than anywhere. Right. But Robert was in Denver while Olivia Trimmer Control was in Athens and Neutral Milk Hotel was in Athens. And these guys are all friends from originally from Ruston, Louisiana. Yeah. Athens was always kind of a home base or it it still feels like a home base for us. Sure. But we have not done uh, much. Robert and I went to Japan in 2019. COVID happened. Robert, while we were touring, uh, put himself through school and became a PhD in mathematics. So he had a kind of a second career after music. And he's currently a math professor up in uh, the University of Michigan or Michigan Tech, maybe. When he decided to do that, were you like, yeah, that makes total sense as someone that had known Absolutely, him for a while? Yeah, it's right up his alley. He, I mean, the man does math for fun, which, you know... <laughs> I, I hate math. Math does not speak to me well, in any way. And it's funny, too, to be a power pop guy, right? And be yeah. a math guy. Because I always say that, like, power pop guys are the other side of the brain. And that the math musicians are, like, blues guys, right? Because there's, like, such math oh. to that. So to sort of he- see both of those things in one person is is interesting. When he speaks about it, you can see his passion for it. And he, he thinks about math in very poetic terms. You know, he sees it as this cosmic language that has these universal truths that are, you know, have great application for all of us. Uh, It was very inspiring for me to see him do that on the road where like most 
when you think of like most rock bands on the road doing a U.S. tour, you think like, oh, they're just wilding out and getting drunk and talking to girls and all this kind of thing. But like he's literally every day has these very complicated math books open and just (laughs) it kind of was a big inspiration for me to go back to school. And I just finished my graduate degree this past week. Uh, Whoa! Just because I'm also I'm also shifting gears. What are you doing? So uh, social work. Wow, this is a great thing, right? Like there is a assumption I think for a lot of folks that or used to be an assumption for a lot of folks generationally that you you picked a lane and you stayed in it, and yep. now. I think especially when you're seeing people, there, there's this thing that needs to happen in your 40s, basically, where you yep. you reassess where you are and what you want to do with the second half of your life. And if it's totally yep. different than what you've done for the first half, more power to you. Congratulations and, and thank you. I mean, that's not like that's a little different than just saying like I'm gonna go do anything, even math. Uh, deciding to do social work is is you know moving into the public sector and really a daily uh, attempt at changing people's lives. So thanks for doing that. Yeah, man. Appreciate that. It feels like, uh, like when I was going back to school, it felt like the early days of four tracking to me. Like it felt like all this area to explore and project onto and learn new ideas and be creative with. So that's yeah, awesome. I'm really excited about it. That's awesome. And what an example, right, for those around you and having a. I know you have a kid who graduated, so it's like, listen, and now we're in this together. You got to We both have to go make our mark on the world, right? Uh, it's that's it, right. It's not. It's you and me, kid. Yeah. So yeah, that's awesome. Well, dude, thank you. thank you so much for making time to hang out. This was awesome, man. Um, and I'm of so ex- I'm excited to meet you, excited to to learn about you, and excited for what you're going to do next. And in the meantime, you know, I mean, just because you're both uh, smart people with degrees doesn't mean you and Robert might not get back together at some point and uh, and make some magic happen, right? So uh, we'll look forward That's to right. that. That's right.